Welcome, everyone, back to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael Martin. We're here with my friend, Michael Sauter. One, uh, close to one week and a few days before the big Christmas festival. The big day, that's right. This now, how's is your the, advent the, the, going? The Regeneration Christmas special. Can we call it? <laughs> I think there's one more between now and Christmas, but uh, Matthew, your coat shows you as somebody who's already probably ignoring skipping it's called process skipping advent and jumping right into the christmas season i i've been such an advent purist for so many years that i'm beginning to to fade in my resolve way to go I just yeah. yield i yield but yeah. i what see it, the, the snow going on outside here in illinois it's really wonderful uh but is it not the case i don't know if you guys noticed this but but advent is always uh a challenging time spiritually and psychologically i think there's pressure that comes in yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it's like lent i mean it's very much like lent Uh, totally totally we get we get walloped in church we just read the decalogue and chant uh incline our hearts to keep these laws it's so sober so that's what balances it out i can Mm -hmm. do but but go ahead michael what were you saying no that's i mean i i was just noticing because i think you know you see uh i mean i I, for my whole life I've noticed this that especially once I got involved with the the anthroposophists because they would brought my attention to it that you know Advent is often a very dark time for people mm. you know and 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 then people and in the in the mainstream you know they they try to attribute that to you know seasonal affective disorder or something but i think it's more than that well i think it's true i mean i think that, no, it's that true is right that's what they do but i think it's really uh this grasping into you know wandering into the darkness yeah you know you mentioned the intensity last week michael and i wonder too that like even you know so we're going to be talking about the you know the Protestant catholic orthodox thing today but the um so let's say the the Orthodox with their kind of bright sadness piece, they kind of got a leg up on Lent a little bit. But even as Catholics, we uh, we kind of know the musical register of Lent, so we can see it coming and kind of prepare. Yeah. I still think Advent is kind of like clueless for people, so it comes at an orthogonal angle and kind of catches yeah. us unaware. Like the 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 pressure that can lead to growth, we don't quite we don't resonate with this season so well, you know. So we say I always tell people, you know, you can watch your desire as opposed to watching the objects of desire. And then I wonder, like, what the hell do I mean by that? And I think, you know, oh, I get it. Good. It's good. good. It's good. It does capture Advent. But is it something I practice? No. Well, but no. you get you get hit by John the Baptist, these huge missiles that are lobbed at you mm-hmm. if you're paying attention to the lecture. <laughs> and it, they hurt. Like, yeah. this yeah. is this. It's his season. Yeah. As much is. more than Mary's season. Mary's mm-hmm. season is coming. But yeah. this really is. It's his chance to, to, to un- unload. <laughs> that's true really yeah. seriously he's, serious. he's got a super soaker john the baptist he's just that's like right. pumping that's right exactly. it's been, it's, yeah it's, it's it's an intense and heavy time but anyway yeah. welcome i should have said dart guns Matthew yeah. milliner hmm. uh thank matthew, you i'm for, for uh long time listener first time caller that's great <laughs> and matthew is uh, uh a professor of art history at wheaton college which is his alma mater am i correct that is correct. That's right. And and Matthew's got uh, a background in, I mean, his, his your major from Wheaton was also in art history, if I'm correct, right? It was. It was, yeah. I'm surprised because actually a lot of, do they still have a major in art history in Wheaton? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, uh, we're the canary of the coal mine, but this you one's are. Still, still peeping. Yeah, because I think Wabash, of- I think Wabash College in Ohio still has like a classics program. Oh, oh my 
God. Like these they, little things hold it, you know, little. Um, well, yeah. And, the little whereas, places. Whereas a lot, Barely. a lot of places are actually thinking of getting rid of the English department, which is hard to believe, right? Mm-hmm. And philosophy. But anyway, yeah. not to digress, but but Matthew also has uh, serious theological training from the Princeton Seminary, right? Princeton yeah, Theological I, Seminary. Yes, indeed, indeed. And did your doctorate also at, at Princeton in art history and archaeology, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And... So and there, I, and there are two separate institutions. Princeton Seminary is one thing. Princeton University is another. They're, they're, um, but they're in the same town. Obviously. But you did the PhD at Princeton University, exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a beautiful town, isn't it? it, it I almost uh, moved there mm-hmm. twenty. Oh, was it, it ten years, stunning. fifteen years ago? Yeah, yeah, beautiful town. I could, I could have, I would have liked living in New Jersey. I have a niece there, but we haven't visited her yet. But I do want to see it. Yeah. Uh, and Matthew is uh, the author of two very interesting books, and we're going to talk about them today. And, and of course, we'll riff on other stuff as well. And one of them is right here, uh-uh, The Everlasting People, G.K. Chesterton and the First Nations, which is, you know, it's kind of like the ultimate mashup book. It's like you never would put these two things together. <laughs> You ever read that? Uh, speaking of mashups, <laughs> I love mashups. In fact, I posted uh, my Christmas tune the other day on social media that I wrote when I was 21 and depressed. But, but it's a mashup of uh, Mozart piano sonata and Get Off My Cloud by the Rolling Stones, which was I did that on purpose back in the day. Uh, but also, there's this mashup. If you could ever find it, it's one of the funniest things you'll ever read. It's on McSweeney's, and it's. Uh, Taylor Swift, a Socratic dialogue. <laughs> it's really one of the funniest things. Who's ever. behind love- McSweeney's? Who's behind that? It's always uh, very funny. What's his name? Um, Dave Eggers. Okay, yeah. who yeah. wrote what? Really, one of the I think one of the best of, yeah. memoirs ever written. Hmm. Yeah. A, bre- a heartbreaking work of staggering beauty. <laughs> Everybody sends me links to McSweeney's, but I've never actually looked at McSweeney's. It's worth like look a- at it. Okay, yeah. but and I have. Sometimes I laugh so hard on those things. I, I like I show it to students, and I'm and I've read the thing ten times already, and I'm dying in front yeah, of students. Yeah. But anyway, we're going to talk to Matthew today about a few different things. One is this, and his interest in both Chesterton, but in particular in Native American culture, or even though uh, what's his name? Ah. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Names escape me. He's the the d'Alene poet. Is really also very funny. Uh, and we're going to talk about this. Ah, there she is. Yeah, dun, 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 dun. there she is. Because dun, 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 dun. that says that she's everywhere. She's so everywhere. She is everywhere. We have to unify. We have to bring. We have to unify the the early Cypriot version and the later version. That's and I probably got. I got one in my office I somewhere. This yeah. one. There we go. This one. Huh. They're all oh, over wow. the place. Bookmarks. I, I mean, I just. Oh, I, I can't find one. I, I know I have one near a desk at home. They're all hmm. over the place. But yeah. uh, yes. So. So first, so I guess, um, Matt. Well, by the way, uh, this is my second experience of Matt via, via Zoom. But my, our first was we had we did a, a Zoom bar. Uh, about was it almost a year ago where we yeah. when i first met my, matt and we had a, we had a beer on sunday afternoon over zoom which was oh it was of, great it was fun and we didn't record that one <laughs> it would be interesting to see it <laughs> uh um but so in 
Matthew, if you could, do you want just give a little background on on yourself and where you grew up and stuff? But also, what led you down this path toward toward writing both of these books? Hmm. So, I you you you're drawn to the things that aren't in your education, right? And and that's not a fault of your education. That's just your your what's missing, right? What what isn't here, and going to Wheaton College in the 1990s that there wasn't a lot of the Virgin Mary. There is a lot now. Um, but so I sort of was drawn to Orthodox icons and to uh, initially as something that just, hey, everyone's studying theology, but they don't understand that there is this thing called visual theology. And it's now, I mean, it's just, it has always been the case in Christian history, but I realized there's guild reasons for that inconsideration. You have extraordinary books that I see constantly um, on the subtleties of Trinitarian theology that are then immediately refuted by a very poor image choice for the cover because theologians, they don't think about that. Now, yeah, slap mm -hmm. something on there. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that's actually the way that these theological ideas are being disseminated. Um, a quick uh, arcane example. Not too long ago, of course, everyone was pinning all the blame on the donkey of, uh, you know, John Duns Scotus. He's the reason the modernity happened. And as I dove into that literature about analogical metaphysics and univocity and, and all of these um, arcane disputes, I, I realized I'm like, no one's reading that stuff. Right. No. I mean, I get it. And, and <laughs> Thank I you, John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Thank I realized and I realized that John Duns Scotus was actually much more sophisticated than I had thought. He um, we try to pin him into this proto modernist. But in fact, he held on to an analogical view of the world where you have a connection to the deity. But the deity is, of course, infinitely beyond. And so I found these passages that it refuted this blaming of John Duns Scotus. And so I wrote a paper and, you know, it got it, it was it got such heated response that I just I was like, I don't think I'm going to publish it. Um, but I basically said, if you want to pin the blame on something for the arising of modernity, pin it on images of God, the father that emerge at precisely that time that everybody's seeing, which basically spoon feed an atheistic view of the world to future generations. Cause it says, look, God is some being hovering up there in the sky embodied, which of course, Christian theology doesn't teach that God, the father is incarnate, but our images do. I said, mm -hmm. there's an issue, the atheist God that people eventually will not believe in. We created it. And so mm -hmm. the whole idea was this frustration. Why don't theologians attend more to images? It is, universal any serious theological discussion i'm sitting there like you know we could talk about images here <laughs> but no oh, that's art history that belongs we've seeded the ground to this relatively secular field of art history so i got into that and never gave up my theological interest but just kept saying screaming like everything people every single theological debate that i encountered in seminary um predestination in particular and carl bard and hans Urs von it was all um encapsulated in these images that the theologians weren't talking about. And that continues to be the case. I'm not annoyed. I just, I would hope that theologians would attend to the discipline of art history as well. So basically there was sort of this vacuum that I tried to fill um, by going into the field of art history and then encountering this kind of, oh, hangover secularism in that discipline, which is a joke. I mean, it's a total joke. People, people write books like, yeah, this, this discipline is completely invalid. 
500 pages into the historiography of the history of art. Yeah, because it has religious problems at its core that we haven't resolved. I'm like, I know. All right. So you have this um, this this field that that attempts to articulate um, how the power and importance of images. And then you have theology that articulates the power of theological ideas. And these things need to come together. So I've been sort of hover. I've been like standing in the street, getting hit by cars, trying to, you know, bring these two. But this is what's cool about your work, Matt, is that very cool, very cool. Well, and because you're uh, you're not you're you're not staying in the cloister. I hate to use that as a, probably the wrong metaphor, but you're not sticking. You're not staying in your lane, according to academia. Right. You're, yeah, you're and transgressing. I think yeah, because those are such uh, disciplines are such contingent historical realities. And once you do the historiographical work and you realize, oh, my gosh, this thing just emerged in the 1700s because Johann Joachim Winkelmann decided that, you know, he wanted to uh, channel some erotic energy through classical statues. You're like, wow, that's why this discipline exists. And also he had intense religious interests. Mm -hmm. And you and you when you, once, as you know, in, in the humanities, if you can, can if you can contain the high if you can um, understand the origin of the discipline, you have the high ground. Right. You can say, I know where this thing started. And in most places where that's what Terry Eagleton did, of course, with English. And when you find out where it started, you can really begin to ask the deep questions. And often they're unresolved theological questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. And and the discipline carries on. And and but I, I want to, you know, break these silos because you realize that they're contingent constructions. Yeah, absolutely. You seem like the guy to do it, Matthew. Well, it's awesome. I mean, you have the energy, the intelligence for sure. And but and I think that's Thank you. what attracts me to I mean, I never I mean, I'm not I haven't stayed in my lane, that's for sure. You know, my sociology, there is no lane for sociology. Well, that's well, <laughs> that's what's so and that's what, about. you know, when uh <laughs> when the, the when the submerged reality came out, one of my friends, Brandon Gallagher, you might know him. Oh yeah, he uh, had a great interview there, with Jordan Daniel Wood. What a marvelous thing! Oh, did he? I'll have to check. Oh yeah, that out. it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, he, uh, there was the my publisher had my bio on something, and and he and Brandon said, "Why doesn't it say theologian?" I'm like, because I never thought of myself as a theologian. He goes, "Well, you are. I, I am. You totally okay. are. Right. Well, that's the thing, you know. But that's." And they even in graduate school, you know, I was, I was even back then I was writing all this. I, I would write, I was uh, studying early modern religious literature and I, I wrote an essay on transhumanism and Blade Runner. <laughs> one, of my, one of my professors said, you can't do that. You got to, you got to stick to the thing. I'm like, but I don't want to stick to the thing. I don't want to stay in a cage. Let me out of my yeah. cage. Uh, and I think, but I, and I see, I see it in your work too. But the the people who break out of their lane are the interesting people in, in every discipline, right? Yeah, and and it's hard to maintain the respect of the guild because the people mm -hmm. who succeed in the guild are often not uh, those these 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 disciplines are often not the people that um ha are able to make these connections. So it's, it's, it's a, there's a paradox too, right? Insofar as the you break out of the lanes but in one sense you look at the modern university and part of me would say like we need to put a moratorium on the naming of all new disciplines for like 30 years because yeah. they're proliferating at such a wild 
Like, um, and, like denominations. Yeah. So I just like, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's seriously. think and share ideas, you know, think and share ideas. Well, and, and that's, that's, but it's going on in, in conversations like this, there's this alternate university with these podcasts and YouTube sure. conversations. That's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's one of the things actually a hundred years ago, Nikola Brajayev, that was his big critique is that the Russians got it. They did get it that the universities, you know, don't reward even then didn't reward original thought. <laughs> yeah. Pavel Florensky right? did not stay in the math lane <laughs> no, where they wanted perfect, him perfect to stay, where he would have succeeded admirably. But yeah. yeah We're setting he, up the electrical grid for Stalin. He's like, I can do that, but let me do this too. Yeah. And Florensky also wandered into art history, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's that was know. my he was my pre I re remember this uh this one of the most important journal articles I counted in grad school was someone in um, like Russian studies journal or something saying, yeah, you realize that Pavel Florensky had figured out all of the moves of critical theory like 80 years beforehand. Mm. And it just showed how, and he even made a case that like Lacan may have gotten his ideas from wow. Florensky. Wow. Because there was a possible French translation that was going on there. And so I, I was stunned. I'm like, all these ideas that are being transmitted to me as the current thought, I'm like, Florensky had figured it out. And then someone gave me pillar and ground of the truth and it was over. He's like, he's of the, the three greatest footnoters I've ever met. Oh my God. Ivan Illich, um, this guy, Peter Kingsley, who's just kind of brilliant. Um, and then Florensky, you know, he, you read the pillar and ground of truth, but so formative for me was like a footnote on the uses of red and blue in different images of Our Lady, right? Isn't it just, you know, and he's just way ahead. So he's creating new disciplines with every footnote. In pillar and ground of truth, you know. Wow. Yeah. And, and I and I and I brought him. I brought him up in a um, seminar once, which was a mistake in this particular case. So, well, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know about his math. I'm like, um, when you graduated as an undergrad, did they say to you, "You're the most brilliant student we've had in generations. We'll give you a professorship in <laughs> right, right, right. the University of Moscow"? Did that happen to you? <laughs> We yeah. need we need more of that, Matthew. Everybody, yeah. again, the idea to take genius and just like humiliate it, you know, whether it's in literary criticism or anything, you know, <laughs> where the where the smaller judge the greater, you know, <laughs> totally because no. it does not in the lane. No, and, and but again, really, I mean, I don't mean to be bringing this necessarily back to sociology, but you read the way that I mean, your if you want to have a theory of. Um, what wisdom looks like. You don't need to come up with it. It's all in the great texts of Proverbs 8 and, and mm -hmm. Sirach 24. And, okay, it, yeah. and, and it, there it is. And so, and she doesn't stay in her lane. She doesn't right? stay and in her lane. And this yeah. is the wisdom that we should be courting. Um, and, and she encapsulates all disciplines and all like Harada of Landsborg, this incredible abbess who was training all of her nuns in the 12th century in Germany, what is now Germany, in the liberal arts, she has these gorgeous images of wisdom in the scent. And these would even, they, she wanted this all throughout her monastery. So they would even be on these silver bowls. So when the nuns were washing their hands, they were looking at images of wisdom. Wow. And it's wisdom in the center with like seven rivers flowing from her breasts, rivers of knowledge, Plato and Socrates and, and Aristotle right below. And then all the liberal arts 
And it's like, that's what women were up to in the 12th century. And then the invention of the university actually stunted their ability to get education mm, because damn. then it became only for men. And that's like, you'd have to wait till like the 1970s for women to be fully embraced by education. It was happening in the 1170s. But, and that's the thing. It's like her understanding of wisdom is a mystical pursuit. And that's what we all should be up to. And I don't think she fits in the university often as we understand it. No. She's exiled, which is why Sophia in Exile is such a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think that's it's there's so much right there. We could do a whole show. Just oh, like, I know. We've already kind of like, like yeah. <clears throat> blown the lid off. You know, because uh, and that and that for me is like one of those those touch touch points is the 12th century and that kind of flowering that happened right there with not only with uh, with monasticism especially women in hildegard uh, but also saint francis right and yes gothic and and the move from roman roman romanesque to gothic architecture when they let the lights into the church right yeah and, and the rosary it all happened at the same time and it was an ex exciting time of course what does the church do Call, call the fourth letter, fourth lettering council, and tighten up ship, right? And then, right. which is kind of, <laughs> and they also yanked the, they pulled the chalice away from the faithful at that time. Interesting. So, and so we're going to go in different, that. we're going to go in different areas, but I know we have to come back to because you mentioned <clears throat> like the rosary there. Listening to you talk with Nate Heil, Matthew, when you said, and again, you're giving names to things I know so clearly because there's all these rumors of Karl Rahner walking around like Vatican II, telling people like put the kibosh on Mary because we're looking at ecumenism. But you saying Vatican II is the most iconoclastic conference ever, anti-Mary. Oh, it totally is. That's great. That's and great. that's Catholics who say that. That's not yeah. me. I mean, oh, okay. that, that, I mean there, there's a, I, I think I said this to Nate, but the, the, the um, John the 23rd convened the council on a feast day of, the, of Mary that was hence eradicated in the council <laughs> like what and, and so she she is famously quote-unquote demoted right yeah. and she doesn't get her full document and that's seen as an ecumenical gesture to protestants that had such a um, powerful influence at that time right mm -hmm. catholics catching up with protestants views of scripture almost like keeping up with the joneses look we've we've done what you asked us to do and, and and some Protestants <laughs> rightfully celebrate that. There are some wonderfully Christocentric moves, thank goodness. Um, but at the same time, I was really influenced by a book by Charlene Spretnak called Missing Mary. And she just, it is magnificent because she's, she says, um, as someone who started in the goddess movement, and then she's just so smart, she couldn't, she couldn't stay there. And so she yeah. sort of goes back to her Catholicism and says, Everything I was seeking, I mean, I don't know if she puts in these words. I don't want to put words in her mouth. It's an amazing book. But she says the problem with Mary in the Catholic Church, unlike the critics like Rosemary Radford Ruther and Elizabeth Johnson, the feminists who say, well, we need to bring her down. People like Charlene Spreadnack are saying, no, she's too small. We need to return to the huge, big Eastern Orthodox Sophia Mary because that is the dimension that was in the ancient church in the medieval church and then and was lost and we need to recover that and you can recover that if you know your christology without um interfering or competing with the love of christ that is totally possible and basically and i and i i, I don't want to uh, corral our conversation but 
the basic case that I make in Mother of the Lamb, which it, um, is, is essentially that if you don't have a sociology, you are going to be irresistibly inclined toward Arianism, which is mm -hmm. the fundamental heresy of Christianity. Yeah. And I, I was just reading your part in, in the book where you're talking about Arius and his misinterpretation of Proverbs 8. His and, literal interpretation yes. of Proverbs 8. Mm. Exactly. <clears throat> and so many of the, the fathers followed that. I mean, that's, you know, where they they couldn't stomach the idea of wisdom being feminine. Right. right? And, 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 and so that and that's the beauty is that I feel like people sometimes listening to conversations like, gosh, what's going on with those guys? They're talking about sociology. Like, it's like, no, this is a consequence of reading Proverbs 8 and saying this cannot flatly apply to Jesus because that's the move that Arius made to prove his assertion that mm -hmm. there was a time where Jesus was not, that Jesus was mm -hmm. created because clearly wisdom is created, created in Proverbs created. 8. Yeah. And so therefore you are... And so he masculinizes it and he um, and applies it to Christ. That move is foreclosed if you are an Orthodox Christian and you <clears throat> and therefore he, have to see it as feminine. Yeah. And but he didn't. He the the masculinizing of of wisdom and Proverbs was not his his thing. That was already part of the, the tradition it was, that was it handed was, down yeah. to him. He, and he was just—he was more clearly interpreting things according to his own tradition of of Proverbs eight, right? Right. And, and what what and what Sergius Bogakov does—he <coughs> he, in his wonderful primer on his entire theology, Sophia, mm -hmm. he I think he brilliantly says that the Orthodox Christian interpretation of wisdom has to be appropriately playful. It can apply to Jesus, but it can't strictly apply to Jesus. It can also apply to the to the wisdom figure, the Sophia. And so you can have both masculine and feminine dimensions in this wisdom. And I and I didn't I'm like trying to understand this incredibly complex field. And then, Michael Martin, in your work, you explain that this is part of the point. You can't try to um squeeze this into a systematic theology concept, yeah. it has right, to right. breathe it has to breathe let me add something here too just to stay on this for a little bit longer is that michael at the your house your farm that led with the conference that led to jesus the imagination i was talking with a, a theologian there and um she was saying because this kind of same conversation came up and uh and i was wondering like why why are so many people like crapping all over Mary, especially like women and so forth? Mm -hmm. And her point was, and I just wonder how we would address this. The, the thought, at least coming from her, was that, you know, so many of the images seem to have a view of femininity that is like the woman in the kitchen and so forth. Sure. And I don't think I'm putting exact words into her mouth, but it was the worry that the femininity being ascribed was something that they saw as not liberating, but constraining. Do we want to add anything to that? You know, I'm just, we might have listeners who say, no, no, no. I mean, I'm a woman and this is why I have some yeah. Road Mary Radford Ruther moves or Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza. Yeah. And that's such an interesting point because the um, what Spretnak does and what another really wonderful scholar, um, what is, oh, her name is escaping me. Um, Sarah Jane Boss, Sarah okay, Jane correct. Boss. Her book, Empress and Handmaid, says that I agree with the Ruther Johnson critique that this supine, uh, uh, obsequious Mary is a problem. 
But my solution to it is not to demote her, which would be a strange solution, kind of from the ingredients of the and and Ruth, she's so modern. Right? Even though I agree with so much of her and disagree with some, Johnson and Ruth are both really modern. Modern. And so and so like in the sense of they're um they're they're they've um done what it takes to be um vetted by the guild but the guild has problems right they've learned mm -hmm. to play in, in that domain and i'm so glad they have because they made important moves but then you, then you get spretnak and um, these other marian thinkers and sarah jane boss they come in and say actually if you go to the 12th century anything but supine this mary is powerful this is the set sapientiae the throne of wisdom or yeah. these glorious orthodox icons of this imposing virgin mary that's the solution not just demoting her from within our our a constricted modern point of view but going back to this earlier understanding and i would say um and as i'm sure you guys would as well i'm not constricted to that timeline of of history as we know it i don't just have to go back i can go up yeah right to, or down even better to use Jakob burma's understanding mm -hmm. into this uh, we have to burst the constraints of history as we know it because this wisdom figure has always been present mm -hmm. beckoning us all this time and trying to keep modernity from desiccating into this shriveled raisin of of um of knowledge as it as it has become in our modern world and to see that her step go into like saint bridget and so forth too right oh you know, that, yeah right this is one of the things like when we're looking for it that's the medium is the message there that like this whole image is part of the same thing exactly I cut then, you off michael yeah and then you can bring carl jung in and all carl jung is doing is is unfortunately christianity had so succumbed to this desiccated view that he has to try in a in a basically a pastoral emergency moves restore christian symbolics right um and of course he then brands it as something else and then his followers wrench it from anything that has anything residually christian to it and then i think it becomes utterly useless pastoral emergency move yeah. well, that's it's, uh... ne it's necessary he's like i have all these pastors in my office he's like what do you want me to do so he so he uncovers all the stuff that Jakob Burma uncovered a long time before him. Mm. I mean, you once you read Burma, you're basically like cured of you. I mean, I love you. I, I get it. But but I, I realize like all these Jungians think he invented it. Right. They think they think Carl Jung invented active imagination. I'm like, have you heard of Ignatius of Loyola? Yeah, Do you no, know honey. that Jung gave talks on Ignatius's visualization theory? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know you didn't know that because the Jung Society probably suppressed them because they were following James Hillman and wanted a pagan Jung. Mm -hmm. So and it's interesting. Wanted, I mean, yeah. so it's very, about very good. Yeah, ecumenism, right? I mean, I think that's and I, and I don't know why, but that when when Jung was writing and a lot of that that generation of psychoanalysis and and even letters in general was so interesting and so rich. It was it, because, and I think this is what it ultimately does. It it offers a I wouldn't even call it secular, but a kind of ecumenical, uh, ecumenical view of things. So everybody's invited to the party, right? Yeah, and 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 sociology itself is intrinsically ec ecumenical. 
I mean, I, that's not my theory. That's just Without what question. it is. And right? interreligious, we might say, and interreligious. Yeah. 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 I mean, it well, starts it starts with well, it starts with, in the Old Testament, but it, it it comes back with Burma and the German mystics and their Lutherans, spreads to England to the to totally. the Anglicans, goes from there to Russia. Is that Schifflinger's book there, oh, Matthew? You know, you know the book. You know, the it's book. great. Yeah. 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 It's just such, does such a wonderful job, and then to realize that. Because it's ecumenical, it doesn't have to be heterodox, right? Yeah. And that's the way that it was presented to me. This was like forbidden territory. And I'm like, no, it's necessary territory. Mm-hmm. And and I uh, and, and the thing about, I mean, one way of seeing Jung is that but this was before the great or in the midst of the great patristic revival of discovering the sources of the early church. And so he's doing that work from these alchemical and Gnostic sources and now we have so many more places to go that we don't just have to be limited to a strict Orthodox Jungian approach to things. We, we just can encounter the archetypes and the archetypes are not his psychological uh, categories. They are, as the ancient Christians would have understood it, ideas in the mind of God. And therefore mm-hmm. they are very alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then, I mean, or, I mean, when you have a category of the angelic and the demonic, all of a sudden, what Jung was trying to stretch psychology into being capable of perceiving, that stretching is not required in an Orthodox Christian framework that believes in the angelic and the demonic. That stretching has already happened. And so I really think, and that's the thing. And so I, I, I admire the courage and the audacity of Jung's defiance of Freud. It had to happen. He was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But now that, but once you learn to imbibe the wholeness of heaven and earth, as all Christians should do, you're fine. Like, and then you can, he can be a companion and then you can kind of laugh at the Jungians who are only limited to that side of the cafeteria. Right. So. Who tried to turn into an Orthodox religion, right? Yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's what Hillman doing. does. He says, right. I mean, he, he, James Hillman, the, the, the inheritor of that psychological school, he says, um, the problem with Jung is he's too Christian. Mm-hmm. Is that we have to get rid of this monotheistic fantasy, and you should de- cultivate a deliberately schizoid, uh, polytheistic consciousness, which, according to an Orthodox Jungian, is a total disaster. And according mm-hmm. to anyone who doesn't have the constraints of law and order and a good upbringing, it's also a disaster for them. You need to have some. And, and it was a disaster for Jungianism in general, oh, right? Completely. Yeah, they they ran out of gas, didn't they? They're they're in the there. It's uh. Remember that one? You ever see that saying? Uh, the English department is where un- disproved theories from other disciplines go to die, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, That's so, so you have Jungian literary critics who just kind of get stuck. You know what I mean? Or any kind yeah. of and and I love it. Stuck. It's better than the than just boring text driven analytic approaches like it's better than that but i'm like but i'm a christian i don't have to you know i've only had in my years of i mean 20 some years of teaching english at the college level university but only had one or two students ever take a Jungian approach which was exciting Mm. i was like oh thank god someone's reading some books out here right because i know you're not hearing this in your psychology class right so so that i know it's funny psychologists like oh we don't do i'm like you don't approach Jung like that's kind of a what no 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 because again no, he's give... not in his lane Jung's not in right his lane. right right so Jordan Peterson's rise to fame no. might be have as much to do with Jung for young men just picture like 
good intentioned young men, you know, th- that's as much as anything he said. He was just offering Jung to like, well, young I men. think, yeah, they offer giving them a taste of the spiritual world and a that's taste great. of how high stakes human existence is. High stakes, yeah. yeah. And, and in a world that doesn't have that, of course, anyone who prominently features that would be rise. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think in our, our generation, Mike, right, that, that happened with Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Right. And, and totally. Which, when I, so when I was 20 something, whatever, when Joseph Campbell did the power of myth, I was like, okay, yeah. now I, now I have something to think about right now. Yeah. This yeah. Is, thank you for giving me something to have a context for my, my psychic life, which was great because then you start thinking about the richness of uh, studying world religions or mythology or all these things. Art, my two basics, you know? like watersheds were kind of, Seeing that, and then I went to graduate school. It was Catholic, but it was in a consortium with the old Kenyan, uh, it's called Bexley, uh, Beckett, Beckett Hall. No. Well, anyhow, the, the Episcopal Graduate School in Rochester, New York. And um, so then my first class, I was going to Catholic graduate school, was an Anglican priest, uh, Richard Henshaw. It was totally brilliant. But I kind of wrote a paper that was using some Joseph Campbell. Then he he offered me when I needed it. The next thing he goes, why don't you tell me how this, these creation stories are also different too, right? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, yeah, and that came at the right time, you know, because I was. What, that's the uh, perfect uh, mentor remark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let's now sp- s- slice them up again. Which is he saw problem. where I was at. He didn't dehumanize me. He didn't say, "Oh, that's child's oh, play." Wow. But that's at the funny. right time, he just invited me to that yeah. next one. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and a quick thing about Campbell is that he hated religions of the book. I I was hesitant to to really go, you know, really plant my flag there. But I've seen uh, Houston Smith, who knew him in his biography, said the same thing. Like, I mean, I was I knew Campbell, <laughs> right? And he just he he had a um, a distaste uh, for Islam, Christianity, and Judaism more than a distaste. Um, mm. an allergy to them. And so yeah. he had to find it in all these. So he's the, your classic. Uh, he paved the way for the, you know, your default liberal lazy uh, mentality in the 20th century. Of like, oh, yeah, I'm just into Buddhism, but I could kill. And but Campbell systematized that. And the problem when you do that is you you underestimate the richness of the religions that are right in front of you. Right. And what's amazing is that Carl Jung made that shift that Joseph Campbell, the popularizer, never did. Carl Jung yeah. goes to India, has the dream, comes back, encounters the grail myths. Carl Jung has this realization that I've got to find it in Jesus. It's I can't find it over here. And that, um, unfortunately, never happened to Campbell. And then we get Star Wars. Buddha sitting under a tree and Jesus being nailed to a tree are exactly the same thing. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's exactly. some differences there too, right? Yeah, yeah it, it, it's a problem. But I did have a wonderful student who, um, uh, my wife needs the keys. I, I think they're in, my, <laughs> uh, they're, in my, they're in my jacket. They were in my jacket. Does she not know the importance of my studio? <laughs> Thank you, Denise. Um, um, but Hi, Denise. <laughs> you, you, they said hello to you. Um, um, so, um, so all this to say, uh, um, a student gave a great presentation on Campbell because I was a student wanted to jump in. I was like, go for it, go for it. And then he gave this brilliant, um, well, we kind of collectively arrived at it together. And because it's all about the hero, and of course the hero becomes the template, right, for everything and uh, mm-hmm. you know he and, and um it's obviously the template for the lord of the rings etc so he had all these joseph campbell charts and then 
And then we were trying to put this in touch with Christianity that, of course, Campbell's trying to block off that connection, and he's stretching and trying to figure it out. And then we all kind of collectively said, but who invented the hero? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Christ, Christ, yeah. right? Yeah. Long before Enuma Elish, right? The template for the hero is in the archetype, and Christ is more than an archetype. He's not just... Um, our psychological projection. And that's where you, I mean, that's where the, the whole Jungian universe shatters once you make that um, observation, which is a, a wonderfully nicely Nicene slash Bardian kind of yeah. invasion of our uh, phenomenon with the noumena. And when you're comfortable making that move, everything's fine. You're like, okay. And and, and I, my favorite is Anne Belford Ulanov, who's basically the, uh, the, the orthodox inheritor of the Jungian tradition, unlike the Hillmanites. So she's at Columbia and she still has, she's like kind of the reigning queen of, of this field. And she is a brilliant Christian Jungian who basically says, and when Jung tries to um, say that there's evil in God, right? Well, that's just him projecting his own evil onto God. So she uses a Jungian maneuver to displace the unorthodox Jungianism in Jung. And wow. so I really feel like Christian Jungians have, have carried the day, but they're, they haven't carried the popular. Who is that again, field. Matthew? Oh, Anne Belford Ulanov. You're giving me more books. I've he never is, written as many, no, 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 and we're no, only like 20 minutes in. Yeah. Drop, everything, <laughs> drop everything and read Ulanov. Um, the Wisdom of the Psyche would be the first place that I would go. U-L-I-N-O-F-F? U-L-A-N-O-V. And Belford Ulanov. And so if you pick up like the Cambridge Companion to Jungianism, she culminates the book as, and but she's a Christian Jungian. And like your typical popular Jungian has um who are very influential they haven't they they would never make the move that she makes that would say well see oh yeah those christians have this tidy neat god without a shadow and then they've got lucifer and you have to assimilate lucifer into your consciousness that's their perspective which is jung in his absolute worst he graduates from that because he's citing first corinthians 13 in memories dreams and reflections mm -hmm. which doesn't have that view at all he i think he kind of moved past that and ulanov said he was projecting his evil, and we know with his marital relationships and everything, it was a, there was some dark stuff there. He's projecting it onto God, saying the problem with you Christians is that you have a um, a overly pure ontology, and the Christian tradition can just make I mean can destroy that and say no, there cannot be. I mean, you are I mean, <clears throat> evil cannot be in God. That's just. From the get-go, we can never make that concession. That's a concession that Hegel makes. Jakob Berman does not make that, even though people accuse him of it. Yeah. And you have, I mean, you cannot be rescued by someone who jumps into the pit with you without a rope. Mm -hmm. Jesus jumps into the pit with us, but he's fully divine. He's got a rope. He can take himself and us out. And if you cut that rope off and say, oh, there's even evil in God, your metaphysics are incoherent and awful, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. you can do about it. So Anne Belford Ulanov is my favorite mm. critic of Jung in that regard. But there are countless other Christian Jungians you can go to. John Sanford, Morton Kelsey, uh, Christopher Bryant, who make exactly that move mm -hmm. and say you can get Jung and all these, you can get all this assistance from him. But when it comes to his when he tries to play theologian, which he says, I'm not a theologian, then he goes and does it anyway. That's yeah. where you have to part <laughs> ways with him. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Very good. So, so let me ask you a question, Matt. Um, in, now, I know you, your, your dissertation 
can't remember the title, but it was the Virgin of the Passion. The, is the, the Virgin the of the formal passion. title of the icon. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is uh, I'm certain led to your most recent book. Am I it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a very reworked uh, version of the very reworked. I'm guessing, yeah. and uh, now, but in the Everlasting People which is, you know, we haven't talked too much about your interest in Native American uh, spirituality. The last chapter is the mother of the Midwest, right? Exactly. And so as I was reading it, wow, I like, wow. wow. Matthew's moving toward sociology in, the, in this book. Um, Precisely. So what were you trying to accomplish in, in that book? And tell me about the chapter of the, the mother of the Midwest. You know? Yeah, so basically that chapter is... I was frustrated because I couldn't get my dissertation published because I got a really raw deal from an academic press. They they dropped um, the hum- they dropped the art they dropped art history and never told me. <laughs> they were just like it's not it's not as profitable. And so anyway, a long story. And so I got um, just ground up in that machine. Uh-huh. And so my so my dissertation stalled. And I'm like, I really want to tell this story. And I got approached by the Wade Center, which is a um, in on campus, we've got the wardrobe of C.S. Lewis. We've got Dorothy mm-hmm. Sayers papers. We got G.K. Chesterton papers. And there's a faculty series. They said, would you like to give a, a series of papers, um, a series of um, talks on one of the Wade Center authors? And at that time, I had developed a real interest in Native American thought and culture and mythology because I realized that I just have to get my mind out of Europe because I don't live in Europe. I live here. And if I want to ask and when I, when I, you know, could afford to, you know, live in Greece and Cyprus, I could ask the deep questions about that land. And I learned to ask the deep questions about that land and the ancient pagan associations that were fulfilled in Christianity. And I just said, well, why can't I ask it about here? And I was amazed at the staggering poverty of literature when it came to a Christian approach to that understanding, in particular the Native Americans of the Midwest. This is a wild, it's, I love it. I love it because uh, you know how in academia they say a person made this move, this move. You're giving that whole a completely different and much more important uh, understanding, like a move to the Midwest. Let's That's start what, talking. Right, you know. the, the, the localist um, yeah, yeah. It, it, impulse, the John. More Wilson, of that. Right, yeah. the, the, we need that, right? And so so I'm aware of that literature and then, but but um, Chesterton had tutored me in how to read Europe that way. Mm-hmm. He had shown me not to be afraid of the cave paintings. He had shown me, uh, which we know infinitely more about now than when he first wrote about them. And in the way that he so beautifully in The Everlasting Man has a redemptive reading of the cave paintings that people of his day were dismissing and saying, or or saying this is evidence of primitive people, mm-hmm. right? Which fueled a racist understanding, or this is evidence of um, that disproves the Bible, right? And he took and he said nonsense, and he said these are this is evidence that humans are made in the image of God. So I learned that from Chesterton. I learned to read um, as a Christian. I was a little bit afraid about paganism, understandably. And he taught me to see, to split the benevolent paganism from the Carthaginian human sacrifice Mm -hmm. paganism. And so I so found Chesterton, uh, an elder brother who helped me read Europe in that way. And I said, and then when they asked me, said, would you give a lecture on, or give three lectures on, on one of the figures? I said, yeah, 
if I can do GK Chesterton and Native Americans. And no one had any idea what I was talking about. <laughs> They're like, what? You can't do that. <laughs> and and thankfully, there was enough people, at Margaret Mead and the Waitsender and others who were who were uh, in, um, helpful. They said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take the risk. And because I said, look, trust me, if he taught me how to do it there, he, he can teach me how to do it here. And most importantly, I mean, I just saw on the internet the other day, like, um, oh my gosh, Chesterton has problems. Oh no, he met with Mussolini once. It's like, <laughs> and that, I've, I've read the detailed accounts of that meeting. It's complicated. I mean, he did not endorse Mussolini at that meeting. Um, but I've long known about Chesterton's problems, right? Anyone who knows the field understands that Chesterton is a difficult figure, but we're just at the moment where everyone's getting canceled instead of engaged. And so I said, well, how about let's try an experiment in non-cancellation. How about instead of writing a long book on Chesterton and the Jews, and by the way, a very long book has, I mean, several have been written sure. about that, um, both for and against, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of trying to exonerate him, because Chesterton's fanboys are not, that's not my cup of tea. I'm not one of these, oh, whatever he says is great. I want to say, I'm well aware of the problems, but how about I retroactively redeem his brilliant insights of which there were countless, countless to help me understand and and grapple with the the traumatic history of race in this country and they're not a lot of not a lot of competition for books like that <laughs> most people are not interested Matthew in redemptively the field yeah yeah <laughs> exactly so most people would rather um, like uh, let's put it this. here. The, here here's the formerly former scholarly way of approaching it. It's a little bit like this, ew, right? Ew, yeah. Chesterton, <laughs> ew, ow, right? Ow. And and so it's like that's about as much as the engagement. And so I want to go further than that and say yes, I'm aware of the problems, and let me use him to to do a deep read of the soil and history of this country which a hundred years before I wrote the book, he had visited for the first time. Now, so let me, let me, speaking of that, did he now? How did Wheaton get papers or whatever they have of Chesterton? Do you know? Yeah, we we're, we had a wonderful Wheeler dealer um, professor who made the connection with uh, Lewis. And once you get Lewis, I think the rest of it uh, okay. came in. So we had um, a really important professor who was sort of the founder of our English department who was a, who had all these connections in England. Okay. Because I, you know, I don't know what year, what, what you probably do know what year Chesterton visited the U S it was, yeah, it was uh, 20, 20, uh, 1921. And then again, in the, in the thirties, in the thirties. So when he came in the thirties, I know he was at Notre Dame. Yeah. Which and he was there right? at the founding of the football stadium. That's too funny. <laughs> and at sad. that time, and actually, he was also uh, on that tour. He visited Mary Grove College, where I used to teach. Oh, yeah. He did a total Midwestern yeah. circuit. And, yeah. But when he did that, apparently, I don't know if it was when he came to Mary Grove or when he was at Notre Dame, but my my former colleague's father was a student at Notre Dame at the time. Oh, wow. And he, and he arrived, in, Chesterton arrives in a taxi, and he was so fat, they couldn't get him out of the taxi. And and my friend's dad was like, uh, well, Mr. Chesterton, maybe you could turn on your side. And Chesterton said, young man, I have no sides. Yeah. <laughs> so. that, 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 that's, that reminds me of his quip with, you've probably heard this before, where some during World War One said, sir, why aren't you out at the front? Well, if you come from this angle, you'll see that I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I've never heard that one. So, but so anyway, what? So we talked yesterday. What about the, what about the the Indians? What about the Native American? Yeah. Where is where's that draw for you? Well, it was this. Um, it was, I, I would say, I mean, it was a again same thing. Not enough of it in my education. It astonishes me that I could I could study for nine years in in Princeton, New Jersey, and and it just never came up. Hmm. It just never came up because all of us were. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not blaming the institution. I'm sure it comes up more now now that there's more consciousness about this. But I may and you could blame, pin the blame on me. But if I add to that my high school education in New Jersey, you know, tack four more years on to that, and then my, you know, good part of elementary school, I mean, just a complete absence of the history of the people that were there. And that's the case for most people in this country. Most people, it's kind of like, a oh, I've never really thought too much about that. And you just think that's crazy you know what i felt matthew is that like a couple of years ago i think it would be my wife and maybe my kids is that um you know every movie every documentary everything i could read i was interested and in, again native americans but it it sounded funny because as you, because of what you're saying all i was doing is skimming the surface yeah. you know where where they thought maybe i was taking a deep dive but i felt so funny saying it you know but i had to read so much because i didn't know anything and here in upstate new york the it's so rich with it you know, so oh I go goodness. to the yeah. You're in the middle I, of it all. In the middle of it all, and so I could go to really great historical sites, Ganondagan and so forth. Yeah. But um, and you know, when I said and, like, and Tecaquitas in your your terrain, I absolutely. The yeah. Yeah, and it would be like I can't think of a great analogy, but saying like I spent a whole year studying something, but it was so rudimentary yeah. still. You know. Well, and well, it's interesting now. Yeah. I, you know, as I've told both you guys, I live on a, a former Native American meeting ground. And uh, all all around where we live, there are still trails that were made that were Native American trails that are still around. But <laughs> my experience of of this this culture, even though my, my wife actually is part Indian, hmm. um, uh, is so is the thing is if you get any of it, you get this kind of superficial. It's a, it's actually a modern or a updated version of the noble savage, right? Totally, mm -hmm. that's what you get. And so, and my only exposure I can think of through my twenties, and it was maybe it was in school, but I I think it was outside of school. It was Black Elk Speaks, yeah, which is right? has huge problems. It does, in problems. particular that they don't tell you that Black Elk became a practically a deacon in the catholic church or that his afterwards. the primary vision that's in the oh. center of the book is mm -hmm. actually of christ and yeah. john neidhart edited that part out wow uh -huh. that's that was for me that was like are you kidding me and mm -hmm. black elk saw a vision of a man with holes in the palms of his hands and neidhart who used literature as his religion said yeah a little too much jesus for me yeah how is that not racism yeah tell mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. right yeah oh you, you know stay I'm in not your lane you. stay yeah, in your know, lane black really? elk yeah exactly in fact, I don't, I don't know where it happened, where it went to. I, I had over my in my office for years when I was at Marygrove, that wonderful photograph of black elk dangling a rosary before a little girl on his lap. Yeah, and 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 so and and again, I mean, and I realize you know some people when you speak this way they 
break out into hives and, um, and they but, are but, right now <laughs> but 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 when we, let's talk so so people are oh the white imagination okay so let's talk about the white imagination so john neidhart wants to end i mean he i mean i i almost want to call it a murder right he wants to end black elk's life at the end of black elk speaks the hoop of the nation is broken now feel bad white person feel mm-hmm. bad or shame feel bad mm-hmm. not telling the story of the resurrection of black elk when he went on and converted 500 lakota to catholicism like and that's um the the work that wonderful that raymond damali has done this work um my friend Damien Costello has written a great book saying how Black Elk used Christianity to resist colonization. Um, and I mean, there's just so many wonderful works that have unfurled that dimension of Black Elk. And by the way, let me put it this way. Both of them are up for canonization, G.K. Chesterton and Black Elk. I, I got I, I put a lot of money on the fact that Black Elk's going to get there and G.K. Chesterton isn't. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, and I, I, again, I love Chesterton, but I mean, just yeah. the problems are obvious. And I wouldn't I mean, I don't see how he's going to make it uh-huh. um, considering the things yeah. that he wrote. Um, and but whereas Black Elk, it's like obvious, of course. Obviously. And so. Right. And so and, and that's the thing you you do these initial explorations and then what I I had the the luxury in the book of really doing the deep dive across the literature. And there is an enormity of literature for any tribe. You just name a tribe where they say, and here's how the Christianity has been suppressed mm-hmm. by white scholars who wanted an exotic Native American. Exactly. And I felt betrayed. It's I Orientalism, betrayed. North American version, right? Thank you. That's exactly yeah. the word for it. Mm-hmm. I want you to be exotic. And the way that the book started was when Norval Morisot, the Picasso of the North, the most important North American indigenous painter, without question in the 20th century. Who's that again? I feel like I'm going to fill a book here. Yeah. His name is Norval (laughs) Morisot. Never heard of him. You kind of got to be, you kind of got to be Canadian. My wife's Canadian, so I inherited all this stuff. Okay. And so Norval Morisot is a massive deal up there. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so, um, and so I go to my friend's apartment in Vancouver where my wife and I were visiting her. And, and I was like, what's this? And she was like, oh, it's a Norval Morisot. And I was like, what? I mean, that's like me saying I have a Picasso in my kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, how, how, I'm like, how is this possible? And then I looked at it. And said, oh, it's one of his Christian paintings. Mm. So you got the, you got the Jesus discount, didn't you? because all these secular canadians are like i don't want this and it is it is criminal the Mm -hmm. way that secular canadian consciousness eradicates the actual genuine christian faith because that's not what the secular canadian public wants they want their exotic normal mori so please edit Mm -hmm. out the christianity please impose ekankar a literal new age religion invented by some white guy in minnesota Upon Norval Morisot, they proselytized him, converted him to a new age religion so that his Christianity that was always in his consciousness wouldn't uh, overwhelm it. And it's still, I mean, it's amazing. When Norval Morisot was caught in a house fire, um, he, his, I mean, he, was, he was an alcoholic. So his, you know, sleeps with a cigarette. It, it burns. He's about to die. And Jesus and Mary appear to him. He's rescued. He's in prison. And he says, bring me my paintbrush. Jesus wants me to paint. 
It is wonderful. If you want to really be entertained, watch how secular Canadian art critics wrangle with that. You're like, mm-hmm. how are you going to get around this? Oh, you'll find a way, <laughs> won't you? But you know he said it. We know he said it. And you're going to try to kind of, and he's, well, maybe he, the, the, the settler consciousness had percolated. <laughs> no, or maybe actually Jesus did appear to him and yeah. was summoning him back to the Christianity that is the ultimate tool to resist uh, colonization. That's yeah. the thing. And so again, you name a tribe. And so I just pick because, you know, Michael's in Potawatomi country. Um, Seneca. The other, the other Michael. Yeah. You're in Haudenosaunee and Seneca. I yeah. mean, and the Seneca stuff, by the way, uh, quick aside, um, Morton Kelsey, the wonderful um, Jungian Christian Notre Dame. I do Dame, know that name. Forgotten yeah. guy. He wrote a book on the Seneca because he had the same. He's like, I'm a Jungian and I'm a Christian and I want to dive into Seneca mythology. So check this out. It's okay, an interesting yeah. book. Um, so all that to say, so you're, so you're in Haudenosaunee, you're, you're in Potawatomi, I'm in Potawatomi. Of course, it's more complicated than that because they moved around a lot. And so I was like, well, I, initially you're tempted in these pan-Indian directions. And then you just say, well, I got to drill down into one particular person group. So I basically touched on the uh, Lenai Lenape because I lived there. I just, you know, where have I lived? Let me do the the audit, the yeah. deep dive. And then you go through, frankly, you go through phases. You go through an intense guilt phase. You And then you realize, oh, that's actually about me. And what these natives don't need is me coming up and apologizing and weeping. It, it only serves me. And so you see people in that phase and then, you know, you can publish books in that phase and go on, you know, stump speeches in that phase, but you have to push, push past that phase and then you move into relationship. And then it, it can't just be academic. You actually have to have, you, you go to, to, to conferences, you go to, to the reservations, you develop these connections and then, and then everything sort of settles because you say, okay, I can't just be constantly pointing to my own guilt and so basically in the book like which has been a you know people like oh this guy has gone woke at wheaton he's talking about native americans and like if you actually read the book you you realize <laughs> that i actually pushed through a fascination mm-hmm. with native american culture to kind of make up for my own deficiencies and then i have to return these sacred implements that i had been given um and and um and work and then and then learn my own ethnic history so that the whole point of the book is not to say let's um, romanticize and 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 be uh, and and fantasize about uh, the indigenous. Let's um, understand this trauma. Understand that Christianity is on both sides of it. Anyway, all that to toggle, and then mm-hmm. then I realized there was a connection to my my dissertation topic because uh, French and English colonization is the story of the Mediterranean, and French and English colonization is the story of the Midwest as well. Mm. Yeah, and I and I and so for for me, I mean thinking in this i mean so many nicholas back black elk is one example but many others charles eastman i think who saw um christianity is the fulfillment of it's the f word it's a, it's it is obscene to some people it, <clears throat> and to they, say it is, fulfillment but, is like <clears throat> but i'm like but yeah, that's what happened to me so what I, what I would i would run into academics or people and they would give me their their black elk speaks rap i say did you know he became a deacon in the catholic church they were like <laughs> I just don't need this right now, right? I would, and I'm like, I'm not trying to. I'm not. Gosh, it's not <laughs> those, those devilish is, colonists got to him after all, didn't they? Yes, this right. is not helping. Hey, this is hey, not helping. Hey, yeah. But, but I think this is. I mean, for me as well, right? When you mentioned earlier, um, with, with Jung about 
he decided after his travels to the east to bloom where he was planted. Yeah, that was the same thing I went through. I mean, I in my twenties there was a real, um, you know, a lot of my friends were Buddhists, were Tibetan Buddhists, and there was a re- it was attraction for it. But but I remember thinking, you know, I don't even know the tradition in which I grew up. Yeah, exactly. So my story as well. That yeah. That's first. Thomas Merton's that story too. That's story. Thomas Merton's story. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I appreciate, and I certainly appreciate uh, other religions in, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is my favorite book on purgatory. But uh, there's something important about that. And also um, this, uh, what is indigenous to us, right? What is, what is ind- indigeneity? What is that now, right? To, mm-hmm. to where, I mean, because America is a strange place in a way because... For my own my own background, uh, you know, I had one wave of of uh, relatives come from Eastern Europe and Ireland, but an earlier wave from France, and that was the on my wife's side of the family too, and mm. that was the 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 layer that intermarried with Indians. Interesting, you know. So, and and my few would see my dad. My dad looked like an, like a Native American, but he had green eyes, and. Mm. Uh, and so, but there are in, in the U.S. There are these layers, right? There's yeah. There's that. There's the land itself, and the, the the native layer, and then the different European layers that come in, and the African or whatever, right? Yeah. So you have all these things that are happening, um, and in that context, what does it mean to be indigenous? And yeah. I don't mean Native American, right? So you are indigenous to this place in which when you were in which you appeared mm-hmm. right and so what does that mean what does that mean culturally topographically and, I, and for me the answer uh, well one of the answers was when i came to sociology right because well there is this uh it's in a way uh like a called so sophia the metaxu it's the it's the meeting place for all things right well okay here's a question that i can only ask you guys based upon this because I can't think of two other people that I could ask, I could ask this question to. So, who's writing when Jamestown is founded? Jakob Burma, sixteen oh seven, right? And can you just, for a moment, imagine the possibilities if you had that kind of wildly adventurous Lutheran mysticism? was in the hearts and minds of the colonists who came to Jamestown, Virginia, and are like, yeah. okay, let's now meet these Native Americans and find out um, the way that Christ has been with them all along. But no, we had to wait 400 years for those. <laughs> That's a great And insight. we're having yeah. them now, thank goodness, but they certainly didn't happen in that initial wave of colonization. But I, I just, I'm sometimes, I, I love, um, when I think of Jamestown, I think of, um, Yak, Yaka Burma, like James in that sense, like, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. But, but those, those retroactive experiments can only happen. I mean, when you're trying, when you, when you're trying to defend the Ford, <laughs> it's not right. time to have the conversations that Michael just mentioned. We have <laughs> well, to have them. Well, that's, what, well, that's what I love about, about uh, Mother <laughs> of the Lamb is it's well, first of all, one of your first epigraphs is from Valentin Tomberg, but, but, but you drop a bunch from a bunch of epigraphs. It's a great from, line, isn't it? From Burma. There's a, there's quite a few from Burma and I'm thinking, wow, Matt's trying to get called before the committee. because. <laughs> You've, well, you've no, gone where I, no man has gone before. Yeah, but but right? I, I think but the beautiful thing about Wheaton is that I I'm 
I would be far more worried about the committee at your typical secular university right now yeah. than I would be at the committee at Wheaton College. I trust my colleagues. I trust my administrators. Like I'm, I have the You're freedom to write something wild like this here. Um, um, because and thank God you did. I know it's, I'm, I'm so, you should, you should just totally no. break ranks. Just throw Chesterton or Dorothy oh, Sayers no. on as any title. And it's going to fly there. <laughs> totally, totally. Dorothy Sayers and the mystical notion of something else, right? Just glob it yeah. on there to get it to publish. Yeah. Well, and also it's like all these people who, who really get into C.S. Lewis and Chesterton. I'm like, you know, I remember sadly the Eagle and Child has closed. I heard. Yeah, I saw that. Um, but I, but I, I remember going there and like popping my head in and being like, oh, there's a bunch of Americans in here, you yeah. know, <laughs> trying yeah. to, you know, pretend they're serious. Some Americans going to open it again. Like, you know, Peeps, Peeps stopped and somebody of, bought it. Of uh, course, of course. Hostess died and somebody bought it. But, but, but how about we just like, can we just let that go? I mean, I know. I, we, I agree. I'm like, can we let that, can we stop pretending we're C.S. Lewis and going on those tours? And because I've done the tours and I love C.S. Lewis and I'll never stop loving him. He will never stop teaching me. He was the word for, for the word for that on this podcast is cosplay. You know, I know that's the yeah, yeah, like, yeah. totally. We have shorthand for that whole phenomenon, the whole phenomenon. Right. Yeah. Total LARPing. And so Attack it's like, of the Hobbits. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So, so I, I just want to say and, and, and for me, the, the primal scene was right before that is that some students and I wandered into the. <laughs> Um, Ashmolean and saw this magnificent new display of a deer hide that was gifted to the colonists in Jamestown by Powhatan um, in in this in the early 1600s. Wow. And it was like it was like England. Oxford was saying, would you please go back home and ask the questions that C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien and others would have loved to have asked about your land, but never had the chance to. And you do. Hmm. Good luck getting that no. message across. No, I want to talk about Tolkien and I want to watch my Amazon series. And I get it. I, <laughs> but it's like, I, I get it. It's wonderful. But could Spe we just talk about this land as well? Speaking of deerskins. So um, three or four years ago, I shot a deer and I tanned the skin, which is an interesting process. And when I did it, I was telling uh, a friend of, of, of ours, <laughs> no, Tyler <I'm> DeLong, <laughs> Tyler DeLong, <laughs> who is a recent convert to orthodoxy. Uh, and he told me, and I didn't never heard this, but this is a kind of a cool thing. And I can't remember which, which orthodox saint it was, but it was maybe no, uh, what's his Herman of Alaska could have been a Herman of Alaska. I love that who, guy who had vestments made from deer hides. Oh, that's what we need more of. Mm. We do need more of that, right? Which is very wow, cool. Wow, that's just mm. gorgeous. How could it not be so? Right. And 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 ah, oh, that's beautiful. I'd never heard that. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks, Tyler. Here's the place to go. So Eustace, right? The great mm -hmm. vision of Eustace, who sees the deer right. embedded in the antlers. Like we need a, a we need a deer theology, right? We, we need a whole like the mystic Christ, and this is where um, Jordan Daniel Woods Maximus book is so important because it finally mainstreams this consciousness that has long been embedded in Christianity, but completely um, incapable of being received, especially mm -hmm. by the modern mind. Interesting that Christ is um, somehow mystically tethered. Not in a identity sense, but at the same time, close to it, um, to yeah. all of creation. And so when an indigenous person 
and no, I scratch that when indigenous generations of people are receiving the messages of this land, right. those messages aren't just demonic or negative. They might be actually in touch with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the problem and see the, the, um, the book tackles Mormonism to a certain extent, but I, I don't think I ever put it this way. Um, but I, I would now is that Mormonism is wholesale fiction in its um, attempt to invent a history of uh, Jesus's connection to Native Americans. Um, but what at least they tried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least they tried because there were no Christians to our shame, Orthodox Christians, mm-hmm. who were talking about Jesus's longtime connection to this continent, the old covenant of Native America, as Bishop Stephen Charleston, a wonderful Native American bishop, puts it. Um, that 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 this it, Jesus has long been tethered to this place, and you just don't need Mormon fiction to make that move. It's there in class. Right. If we had just thought as adventurously as Maximus the Confessor, then we would have made that connection. And it is frankly our responsibility to do that now. Absolutely. The is. shorthand, the shorthand I use for some of this, and I'm so glad you say that, is the, you know, the calling, this uh this European kind of Christianity, everything you're saying, Matthew, you know, we got to start doing our own work here, but we have, if if I want to inspire young people, I say like the future, the church is dying again, Chesterton. It's, we're going to call this the sixth depth of the faith. And um, in America, let's not, we've got to sever ourselves from this kind of European thing. It's some, in some way. And for shorthand, one, one way of framing what we're looking for is Again, maybe under the patronage for me of Our Lady of Guadalupe, but we're looking for those things from below, but that are not from the devil, from below, but not from the devil, this European top-down thing, you know, and so the future is bright, Mm -hmm. but what you're saying is just so simpatico with like where we need to be, because it involves like a severing of our ties, not just with the European landmass, there's great fumes that come over, but everything you're saying about like, um, we can, we can ask more of Chesterton and Tolkien and all these people. Yeah. You know, so I, I dare say you're adding to what Michael oh. and I say all the time with Codplay, you know, that use your love of Tolkien, but yeah. ask those questions of us, you know, yeah, don't, don't abandon him, yeah, but yeah. start to do the work yourself and Andrew do the Peterson, work yourself. Andrew Peterson has done Andrew, that with, yeah, the, yeah. with the wing feather saga, you know, mm-hmm. he's thought, but again, I doubt, you know, they don't, they thought too much about the, you know, elephant in the room who's mm-hmm. never talked about with this is just the Cherokee. Yeah. yeah. You guys ready for this? There is a story of the Cherokee and I, I, I read it. I, I did, you know, double check the sources just to make sure I'm not just throwing this around. There's a story of the Cherokee that there were these um, equivalent of fairies in Cherokee mythology. And that when a missionary came and encountered these woodland creatures in the mountains of, you know, the Asheville area all around there is that when they, when these fairies heard the message of the God who died on the cross, they wept and those tears became crosses. And then you go to these folk museums in the Asheville area and you'll see little, these little cross, all these, some of the fairy crosses. Now your Whoa. typical, I know, right? Wait, I right? need a minute. I need I know, a minute. I know. I, know. I think so. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like, and yeah. like, you know, the, the first thing we want to do is is um, take out our, our Chestertonian uh, uh, mallet and bash over the head of any stupid anthropologist. Who said, well, that didn't happen. You know, as, as as Chesterton says, there are too many keys to mythology, right? You know, it's, everything is phallic. He's like, who cares about your anthropological theory? That speaks at the mythic level. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Cherokee them it also illustrates the fact. Now I can't, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of those beings, first of all, but I also no. don't need to prove it, right? I'm not going to take the modern bait there. But I it just it speaks at the mythic level. Right. What Why did you mean by a, the elephant in the room with the Cherokee? I confess well, no, that would have no, what head. I mean is that you I mean, you go to these, I mean, I've you know, you, what I mean by the elephant in the room is when you go to, you know, your typical academic institution in land formerly occupied by the Cherokee, the elephant in the room is, can we talk about the Cherokee? Let's imagine mm. a Christian conference in land formerly occupied by the Cherokee. Can yeah, I talk no. about that? No, because the, and unfortunately the people that talk about it, aren't going to have any interest in Christianity at all. They just want to tongue lash people and say, Oh, mm-hmm. look at the bad things you did. They don't want to tell because they haven't done their research. They don't want to do the yeah. deep history of the history of Christian missions, about mm-hmm. six different layers of denominational contact with the Cherokee until the Cherokee finally embraced Christianity as their own. Mm-hmm. Right. And that happened. And no Christian who lives in land formerly occupied the, by the Cherokee wants to have that conversation. And I'm like, what you, this should be the first thing you're talking about. And I know, cause I've go to these places and I talk about this and people look at you like deer in headlights. They're like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, why would you not care? Right. right. This is your land. And the gospel has been embraced. I mean, for, let, let's just take this land 350 years ago. Thousands of Kaskasia Indians in the Illini Confederacy received the gospel joyfully because of Father Jacques Marquette, mm-hmm. not far from where I am. Yeah. Does anyone in the land of Illinois know about that? Almost nobody. Because first of all, they'd be, oh gosh, Marquette, that colonizer, isn't that awful? No, they embraced and loved him and mm-hmm. fought over his body because they so respected Jacques Marquette. Yes, they were racist missionaries who came after him but marquette Marquette was a different beast no my goodness and so all this to say every single american should be able to answer three questions i get this from my mennonite friends that i did the trail of death with which was our equivalent to the trail of tears in the midwest you should know who originally occupied your land how did they lose it and where are they now ask those three questions and i would add a fourth go meet them and find the Christian connections that are inevitably going oh, yeah. to be there. You've probably been to powwows before, man. I imagine many. Yeah, we used to. We haven't gone in a while because they used to be closer to where we lived, and we lived closer to Detroit. But we'd go all the time and take the kids. And, and they're and often we'll, all in the name of Jesus. That's the thing. Yeah, all these politicians they're, are there. They're like, um, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> and they're always, you know, very. <laughs> they would be singing hymns at the powwow, right? Of course. Yeah. And there's Christian implement. There's Christian regalia. Oh, yeah. You're just like. And so and that's uh, and I got to make a plug for the um, Nates, the North American Indigenous Institute of Theological Studies. They are a really fascinating Christian organization. If you go to their conferences, you really I mean, it's a lot of one stop shopping because so many people thinking about these issues will be there. And they at least have the bandwidth to incorporate Christianity in their conversations, mm-hmm. not just uh, indigenous studies, which is spiked because of the white imagination. That's right. By an anti-Christian consciousness. Mm-hmm. That's it. I think certainly we need a we need a, like a new imagination. And yeah. when you were talking about, we need a I journal remember, called Jesus the Imagination. That's a good idea. Somebody do that. Somebody do Actually, that right now. You know what, Matt? <laughs> Somebody do that six years ago. Yeah, I have to get Matt to write something for the next one, which is on 
the household of things, which is exactly what we're talking about. Oh, cool. Um, and but because uh, I'm what I uh, so anyway, what I was thinking is I remember, and I don't know why. I think I did it over the holy nights when I was a Waldorf teacher. I have a notebook someplace in the house where I drew a picture of the crucifixion, but Christ had the head of a deer, right? I don't know why I did it, wow. <laughs> but but it kind of it just bubbled up from from the from the unconscious as the, as the deer slain from the foundation of the world. Well, that's I, and I, <laughs> I think like there's yeah. something um, something there. But anyway, before we 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 go, we have to talk a little bit about. We're definitely going to need a part two here. I'm yeah, going to say gonna... that right away. <laughs> let's, we haven't let's even gotten into the other book. Yeah. Before we let, before we before we do that, let's talk about the mother of the lamb a little bit because I, I want to show you something. But to lead into that, behold, see that? Is that Murr from a from a oozing icon? Yes. Yeah, I have one. Yeah, I know that's one. So tell us about it. So well, that was a pretty good guess, Matt. Um, well, that's no, because so. I've been, I've been, because I've been to, I've been to one of uh, a, a, an oozing icon ritual, and I got one of those too. No, where where was yours? <laughs> Uh, my, mine was uh, it was cruising around New Jersey once, and I went. This is this is a highlight of the Regeneration podcast. So that's just so quickly. I got it. Ooze, oozing icon murder. So anyway, <laughs> had to be nineteen ninety six. And we are we are jars of stuff for one hundred. Uh, my name is Matt Milliner. Yeah, <laughs> that's, good. that's good. So what happens? So what is oozing murder? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Take miraculous stuff in the U.S. for three hundred. <laughs> um, so anyway, 1996. I was. Uh, I had heard about this oozing this miraculous icon that was oozing oil, and it was at a church not far from where I lived. And I happened to be out on a Saturday. I think I was billing people for my landscaping business. I had. I just spilled coffee because I was still laughing about oozing. The word oozing. I heard it for the fifth time and I spilled coffee. Go ahead. And so I pulled into the church, uh, the parking lot, and there just happened to be a prayer service going on. And they had the icon at the front of the church. And you could see the oil dripping off the icon. Mm. I mean, and you could see the jars that had been filled with the oil that had dripped mm. from the icon. I, it wasn't just a little bit. It was jars, gallons. Mm. Mm. And so I, I was, it was a very emotional. And you, and you didn't moment. see like a, like a, a container under the table or anything. I checked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you didn't see was, somebody going like this, pumping their arm, like, searching. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But it was, it was he's got like a bellows under his arm, this pump. This thing. And I so I went up and I was anointed, and the priest gave you the cotton ball with oil on it, which I yeah. still have. That's yeah. cool. This is almost 30 years ago, so it's 26, wow. 27 years ago. Yeah. It doesn't it's it, and the, the oil I can open up the, the cork that it has never gone rancid, it still smells like roses. Wow, that's beautiful. So, and we've had it for a long time. Um. The first time you two but, met was over boozing. This time you've met over oozing. <laughs> boozing and news. <laughs> so what happened? So um, then, I, so I was actually before we went on, we went live today. I was trying to find out what day it was that the icon, because this was in an icon in a woman's home, mm. and her, and it was, she lived actually near where my sisters live now. And her son said, "Hey, mom, what's going on with that picture?" And it was oozing oil. And I can't remember if it was on the Feast of the Protection of the Mother of God mm. 
or the feast of the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple. Mm. But I think it either one, you talk a lot about both both of those feasts in yeah. the book, right? Yeah. So why don't you talk about the icon and relationship to that? Well, <laughs> all of a sudden you've painted a scenario yeah. for me as I'm pointing out that, you know, for the most part, I'm you know, totally fine with Wheaton administration, but I probably would have problems if some of the icons in my classroom started to ooze myrrh <laughs> <laughs> and we had lines of pilgrims. Like that has not happened yet, but yeah. I'll, I'll brace myself for that scenario. Okay. Yeah. Feast of the presentation in the temple. And what's so funny about that is I have a little icon that in the classroom of the Feast of the Presentation, almost as if like, oh, this is a little much. Like, it's definitely not in the Bible. Um, and I, I, it's not something. But all, then November 21st came around and I was like, you know what? What an awesome feast. Like, it's just it's virtually canonical in Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these things, they get vetted. Right. They get, yeah. I mean, if, if, a, if, a, if a, in the Catholic <clears throat> canonization process, if it's really hard to become a saint, you got to get vetted. Try becoming a feast day. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is popular consciousness, um, the sense of the faithful, as John Henry Newman would put it, over centuries almost demanded this level of presence. And what's truly astonishing, and it's kind of like the fairies in the Cherokee, it, it how just flat dumb would it be to say but did it happen it just shows a level of literal consciousness that i would never abandon like i believe in the literal resurrection of jesus without question i also believe in it on five different levels as well i don't have to choose one of those levels it's it is literal and symbolic and mystical and cosmic and so when I look at, and again, all of those at the same time, that's how big my categories of truth are. Right. I read scripture through the four senses, not through one of them. Mm-hmm. And the modern discussion, of course, so often strictly limits it to the literal, and which I would never surrender. And so when we look at that feast of the presentation in the temple of Mary going into the Holy of Holies, some genius biblical scholar comes, well, that could not have happened in that time. And you're like, (laughs) of course it could not have happened. But guess what did happen? God Almighty went into her womb. Are you going to tell me that can't happen either? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so how beautifully to symbolically encapsulate that truth by showing the Virgin Mary preparing for the shakana residence right right of her by going into the shakana residence right and, no and, less and having a woman do it and yeah. it's like and people say but women weren't allowed in that part of the temple you had to be a hyper I'm like of <laughs> that's the whole point yeah the whole point is that she's breaking the rules <laughs> well you know the the saying from from, from lev shesta right? broke the rules when he became incarnate go ahead Lev Shestov is saying, you know, a God who can't change the past is no God at all. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And so all that to say, so, um, and I mean, t- I tell you this, like with a woman, an undergraduate woman who is wrestling with whether or not Christianity is misogynistic. I, I, we deal with this often, which this is why the Virgin Mary class that I teach with my colleague, Dr. Amy Peeler is always packed out. We just have, you know, people want to wrestle with this. And the Virgin Mary is the primary field in which to do this. And the first thing you say is, let's talk about the goddesses. Do you want to go there? 
And let's really talk about what Ishtar would be up to and how she, in fact, is the construction of the patriarchy. That's so easy to make that case. Mm -hmm. So you first off, you sort you sort of say, do you want to go with the Wiccans? Because they're understandably seeing a deficit in Christianity that we need to rectify. But in so doing, they're inventing. I mean, you've had Ronald Hutton on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, he just he's like, yeah, you guys made all this up. It's not real. You know? <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, the whole, and so the whole goddess, you just let the whole goddess infrastructure collapse. And then you, and then the beauty of the feast of the presentation in the temple, that the one place where women, of course, they weren't allowed to go there. The Virgin Mary undermines that because that's how God came into the world. And mm -hmm. so the, our only recipe has been, let's not, deconstruct traditional Christianity and try to come up with some uh, heterodoxy. Let's see what's in the mainstream of the tradition and see if we can find a liberating power there. And I think I would make the case that the Feast of the Presentation of the Temple is the mainstream of the tradition. Now, it's um, the Protevangelium, where it comes from, the Proto-Gospel, the prequel to Luke, was very suspect in Latin Christianity. But ultimately, it became irresistible. They couldn't yeah. get away from it. Now, mm. granted, we read it in class and there are problems with it. And one of the key problems and one of the reasons I'm glad it's not in the canon is because of the of the um, birth that entails no labor pains for symbolic reasons. I get it. Right. There was that was part of the curse, but it's almost Gnostic in the way that it presents. And I right. get it. It's It's in that symbolic register. So there are parts of it that concern me, but um, we need these penumbras around the canonical texts because they add these symbolic uh, layers of beauty, and those are inevitably artistic as well. And that's the that's the full orbed Christianity that is required to go up against whatever weird technocracy is coming at us far mm -hmm. faster than we like to think. Right. Amen. That's probably a good place for us to wrap it up. Um, we've been, we, could, we could go on for a few more hours. I, I think you guys well, well, I'd love to do it again, guys. This is yeah, we, so, we should. I've been looking forward to this for so long because you, 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 you both think that way. And I'd I, like I, you. I like your impressions. You did politicians who see that Native Americans uh, could be Christian <laughs> and you do a uh, biblical scholars asking about. <laughs> And I love biblical scholars. It's yeah, just yeah. when they're strictly at the literal mindset, I just I I can't bear it. Yeah, and I think we could do a whole other one in the near future about the you yeah. know the book. Yeah, yeah, and not all biblical scholars are there. A lot of them think right, 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 hundred percent. We're so, big fans of this Morgan Parker. Sure do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, totally. All I'm going to say is, listeners, faithful listeners of the Regeneration Podcast, please go out and buy this man's books. You will be richly rewarded. Absolutely. For this. And uh, Matthew, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, the word is scintillating. Really oh, scintillating. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Okay. Everybody, thanks for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>